Welcome to the No Time to Read podcast, where I read books so you don't have to. Today's book is A History of World Agriculture by Marcel Marzoyer and Lawrence Rudar. I'm happy to have you join me. I wanted to start with this book because agriculture is so fundamental to human civilization and is going to be the economic bedrock of most of the societies I talk about in this podcast. There's a lot of material in this book, but I'm going to focus on the discussion of soil fertility and its relevance to the rise and fall of early human civilizations. So let's start from the beginning. How do plants grow? Well, you need sunlight, water, and fertile soil. But what makes soil fertile? Well, there are lots of factors like texture and temperature, but one is particularly notable for our purposes, mineral composition. Fertile soil has a sufficient amount of minerals for plants to use. These include nitrogen, phosphorus, potassium, sulfur, magnesium, calcium, and others. These minerals enter the soil in two main ways, the slow degradation of the bedrock underneath the soil and the decomposition of dead organic material on top of the soil. So there is a natural cycle to soil fertility. Plants absorb minerals from the soil, animals eat those plants, those animals poop out the minerals and eventually die, their decomposing bodies returning minerals to the soil. Then the process can start all over again. But when humans began to develop agriculture, they ran into a problem. Humans were leaching minerals from the soil faster than those minerals could naturally regenerate. While this wouldn't be noticeable immediately, over decades, the same patch of soil would be able to grow fewer and fewer crops until it eventually became unusable. However, early humans found a few workarounds to this problem. The first and most direct solution was animal fertilizer. Large animal herds could poop in sufficient quantities to return minerals to the soil and improve its fertility. However, early humans didn't have access to a sophisticated feed system like we have today. So instead of leaving the animals in one place and bringing food to them, herders were forced to move with their herds as they discovered new areas to graze. This constant mobility made animal fertilizers a bad fit for large-scale stationary agriculture. A second solution was the use of slash-and-burn agriculture. Prospective farmers would discover a section of untouched wilderness, initiate a controlled burn to clear a large swath of land, and then grow their crops there. They would farm in that area for one to three years before moving on and clearing a new location. They would give their old farmland 10 to 20 years to lie fallow as native plant growth slowly restored fertility to the soil. You could then cycle back to your original farm and grow crops just as productively uh, as before. The problem with slash and burn agriculture, of course, is that you need a lot of untouched wilderness to slash and burn. As population increases, this becomes more and more demanding, and again, isn't really sustainable for large-scale agriculture. The third, and ultimately most successful solution, was flood agriculture. Rivers carry silt rich with minerals that have been washed away from upstream. 
Many rivers are prone to seasonal flooding, which deposits this mineral-rich silt throughout the river valley. Early humans learned to use this to their advantage, planting crops in the floodplain, which would then be fertilized by the annual floods. For example, ancient Egyptians planted their wheat in the winter so that it could reap the benefits of the Nile's summer floods. This allowed a stable level of soil fertility without the constant movement required by other solutions. So, given the benefits of flood agriculture, it should come as no surprise that all of the earliest human civilizations developed along major rivers. Egypt with the Nile, Mesopotamia with the Tigris and Euphrates, India with the Indus, and China with the Yangtze and Yellow River. So, what were the origins of these civilizations? How do you get from traditional human organization, which is small, nomadic, hunter-gatherer tribes, to the strong centralized government of the Egyptian pharaohs or the Babylonian Empire? If we're talking about the origins of the state, Western political thought places a lot of emphasis on the social contract theory, outlined by Thomas Hobbes and John Locke. Hobbes described life without the state as nasty, brutish, and short, and as a war of all against all. For Hobbes, the state is a solution to the inevitable, terrible violence that humans afflict upon each other in the state of nature. Uh, Locke, for all his differences with Hobbes, sympathize, uh, sympathizes uh, with Hobbes's fear of anarchistic violence, in particular, emphasizing the role of the state in protecting private property from seizure. One modern theory, however, views state development from a different angle. A significant issue with flood agriculture is actually directing the flood water where you want it to go. The solution to this is irrigation, a very complicated and labor-intensive task. Developing complex irrigation systems requires strong oversight and efficient division of labor. Early states, as the theory goes, arose as a means to develop the irrigation needed to sustain flood agriculture in places like Egypt and Mesopotamia. To me, this is a much more compelling argument than Hobbes and Locke's preoccupation with the war of all against all. Life in Egypt or Mesopotamia wasn't any more dangerous or violent than life in Africa or Europe, but civilization developed there first because of the specific environmental conditions that required it, the demand for sophisticated irrigation that wasn't present among humans elsewhere in the world at that time. If you're an English nobleman, maybe the main goal of the state is to prevent people from seizing your property. But if you're an Egyptian peasant, you're probably more concerned with what puts food on your table at the end of summer. While we're talking about Western misconceptions of historical development, I really want to tear into the idea that human development is linear. For example, the belief that an agricultural society is somehow at a higher level than a hunter-gatherer society. This idea formed the core of the Manifest Destiny ideology in the U.S., which claimed that the natives forfeited their right to the land because they failed to utilize it to its full potential, as seen in the agricultural economies of the European uh, 
colonials. Um, but for early humans, life in an agricultural state was often worse than life as a hunter-gatherer. Now, it's hard to gather accurate data on this, but many modern historians believe that the diet of the average ancient farmer was significantly less nutritious than the diet of the average hunter-gatherer from the same time period. This makes sense when you remember that humans were evolved specifically for the hunter-gatherer lifestyle, not to sit around and look at plants grow all day. For example, think about how much effort has to be put into wheat just to transform it into something edible. Labor was another big disadvantage of the agricultural lifestyle. As modern estimates suggest, the farmer spent a much higher percentage of their day working, that is, ensuring their daily nutritional needs were met, than their hunter-gatherer counterparts. So why would anybody choose to start farming instead of continuing the relatively relaxed and healthy lifestyle of the hunter-gatherer? Well, they may not have had much of a choice. Let's look again at Egypt. If you're an early human and you're migrating north from Central Africa, when you get to Egypt, there simply isn't a lot to hunt or gather. You have a single habitable strip of land along the Nile surrounded by countless miles of uninhabitable desert. At this point, life under flood agriculture probably seems like paradise compared to your other options. This pattern of a small hospitable area surrounded by a much larger inhospitable area can also be seen in Mesopotamia and many other early civilizations. So, we've gone over some of the drawbacks of agriculture, but what are the advantages? Well, the big one is that agriculture can support much higher population density than hunting and gathering. Population density, in turn, allows for labor specialization. You can develop permanent social classes for craftsmen, priests, and most importantly, soldiers. This is the point where Hobbes's war of all against all really comes into play. Because in warfare, it doesn't really matter if your troops are malnourished and exhausted. If you can put 10 times as many bodies in the field as your opponent, you're going to win. So agriculturals, uh, agricultural societies usually had the upper hand militarily against hunter-gatherer societies, with some very notable exceptions I will be, cover, be covering in later episodes, mostly involving horses. So, you've got your new agricultural state up and running, but how do you maintain it? Every state relies on taxation, but we're still in a pre-monetary era. So early states collected taxes in two main forms, food and labor. Taxation in kind was very simple. Government agents would estimate the productivity of a territory and then demand a percentage of the crops grown in that territory to feed the royal family, the bureaucratic class that supported them, and the soldiers protecting them. Corvée labor was a bit more complicated. Citizens were expected to devote a certain amount of their time each year to work on state projects. Irrigation shows up here again, as it was the most important project possible under flood agriculture. But corvée labor 
was also used to create religious monuments and royal vanity projects. So the pyramids were built in part through this forced corvée labor. The other type of labor available to the state was slaves. Now, it's important to distinguish ancient slavery from its later forms. The three main sources of slaves for early civilizations were one, debt slavery, which was uncommon, two, criminals, which was relatively common, and three, prisoners of war, which was extremely common and the main way a state would acquire slaves. Um, so a destitute citizen could sell himself or his family into slavery, uh, or occasionally it would be prescribed as a criminal punishment, but uh, like I mentioned uh, before, the vast majority of slaves were acquired uh, out of the pool of captured soldiers um, from warfare. Uh, in fact, slaves were so valuable a resource that their capture was a major reason to go to war in the first place. However, in contrast with the slave societies that developed in colonial America, for example, ancient slavery constituted a relatively small portion of the population, rarely more than 5 to 10 percent, with, again, some notable Greco-Roman exceptions I'll cover in later episodes. Slaves were seen as a supplement to the peasant workforce, not a pillar of economic development. So now that we've got a good idea of what early agricultural societies looked like, I want to take us back around to the big picture theory of soil fertility. Another good book on this subject, which I will not be covering in depth here, is Growing a Revolution, Bringing Our Soil Back to Life by David Montgomery. I highly recommend this book. Um, so as populations grow, people start to push out into areas that are less and less naturally fertile. And over a long period of time, you begin to hit your population peak. That is the highest number of people you can support given your available resources. And if birth rates continue to increase, which they always do, you begin running out of food. Famine usually provokes political crisis, which can lead to civil war and possibly the total breakdown of your civilization. This in turn causes a population decrease, and this decrease allows the soil to rest and regain some of its fertility under a lighter load of consumption. That is, until civilization starts to recover and populations start to boom again. Then the cycle starts all over. Historians are, justifiably, obsessed with why empires fall. Some usual suspects are overexpansion, political instability, natural disasters. But I think that reached the end of their soil fertility cycle is a cause that should get a lot more attention than it does. Of course, it's not going to be the deciding factor in every case, but I think it's important to keep this idea in our minds going forward as I talk about the rise and fall of different nations. But early humans didn't just concern themselves with agriculture. Next time, I would like to go over the other equally important side of the equation, their developing relationship with animals. Episode two will cover the covenant of the wild, why animals chose domestication by Stephen Budiansky. 
I hope to see you there.